0: Hey, this is Steven and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. You in five years, you have 1,825 days left. No pressure. How are you going to spend them? What are you going to be doing in those five years? What are your numbers like? Do you clean less? Are you going to sleep more? Are you going to spend more time in traffic? What are your numbers like? When you start to think about and evaluate the numbers of your life and what that's all going to add up to, there's one question that you get to the end of it. if we spend all that time doing all those things, where will that lead me? Where will that lead me in five years? Where will I end up? So we made this whole sermon series around this quote that we love. We all end up somewhere. Few of us end up somewhere on purpose. And we started to think, well, what would it look like if we were the ones who ended up somewhere on purpose. If we were the few who really made a plan of where we wanted to live life and we intentionally made choices to get to that place of where we wanted to be in five years. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about that about what it means to plan and be intentional about who you want to be in five years and what God has to do with that. We're going to be asking those questions and thinking about that together for the next five weeks. We're really excited about this series in particular. It's a passion of ours to share with you. So we're glad that you're here today to kick it off because today we're starting with a very simple question. Where do you want to be in five years? And if five years isn't a big milestone for you, where do you want to be in five or ten or fifteen years? Or maybe, where do you want to be when your kids leave the house or when you retire? Where do you want to be in life in those big moments? Seriously, pause for a second and think about where do you want to be in five years? Can you picture it? Can you imagine what that looks like, what that feels like? For some of you, that comes naturally. There are a few of you who who do have visions of what you want the future to be. But for most of us, it's a hazy image, and there's a lot of contingencies with it. Well, I could want this, but only if this happens first, or only if she does this, or, or only if my parents do that. There's contingencies. It's not a very clear picture. My guess is though all of us, at some point, in our 20s or in college, did have a vision. We had a clear picture. We had a point A, a place that we wanted to get to in life. It was this clear vision of what we wanted. And we thought at that point that all we had to do to get to that vision was just make four or five major life decisions. That's all we had to do. Maybe where we lived or what job we took or how many kids we had. We just had to follow those dots and we would make it to A. But what happened along the way, as soon as we started adulthood, what we started to realize is there weren't four decisions, there were 400, 4,000, 4 million, and you're standing in the middle of the dots in life and being like, whoa, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. And as you look around and you look at all these choices that you have to make as an adult, there's the big ones, but there's also where to get gas, where to buy groceries, where your kid to hold him back or to push him forward. There's these little choices throughout the day, and they start to overwhelm us. And as they do, as we start to get absorbed in the day-to-day and the decision-making, that vision A becomes a little bit dimmer. We start to lose track of it. We get distracted by the next new shiny thing that comes up in our life or the next exciting opportunity. And maybe for some of us, that point A disappears completely. And we're just standing in a swarm of dots, in a swarm of decisions, and and so we go through our lives jumping from one decision to the next, trying to make one choice to the next. We don't have an end goal in mind, but we're just going to plow through. We're just going to look around to the people around us, see what they're doing, and maybe we'll just follow along. And so we get to this place at the end of the life where we aren't at A at all, we're at B. And we stand at the end of our lives and think, oh, how did I get here? How did I get so far from where I meant to be? What's so interesting about this problem is that I like to think that this is a modern problem sometimes. That's because we have so many choices. I would argue that this day and age, we have the most choices ever of anybody who's ever lived. And maybe that's what's making us tired and fatigued and lose sight of our end goal. But as I was reading scripture a few weeks ago, I noticed that this wasn't a new problem. You see, after Jesus died and rose again, all his people who followed him had to decide what they were going to live like. What was their vision of community going to be? They had to choose a point A. And so this guy, Paul, who was a church planner, he wrote tons of letters to all of these churches describing point A to them, saying this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is how you need to live. This is our vision for the future. And at the end of his life, he wrote a letter to a church in Rome, in Romans. He never got to visit them, so it's a pretty long letter where he describes this vision for over half of the letter, describing what it looks like and what it means to be in community as a Christian. And he gets to the halfway point of the letter and he takes a break and he holds up his hand and he says this, and I chose this translation because I think it's so accurate and describes what we feel today. He said, But make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of your day-to-day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God absorbed and exhausted in the day today. God, isn't that how we feel? Do you know we make 35,000 decisions a day? 270-ish on food alone. <laughs> 35,000 decisions a day. And some of them you've automatized, and they're normal now, but most of them are not. Most of them are choices that you actively make, every day, and it leads to this condition, and I'm sure some of you feel it, of decision fatigue. You're just over it. You're over of making choices. Do you remember those days when you used to have to sit down at a television at a certain time to watch a program? There was one choice, or like five if you had cable, right? Like, there was one choice of what you wanted to watch. Now, you literally can watch anything at any time. We have so many choices, even in the smallest pieces of our lives, we're overwhelmed by the amount of decisions that we have to make. And Paul warns the church 2,000 years ago, which I think is crazy, because I can't imagine what types of decisions they had to make, surely not as much as ours, but even they were getting absorbed and exhausted in the day-to-day. They had their head down. They were focused so intently on making sure that their lives were okay, That they were just doing one thing to the next they they lost sight of this bigger vision they lost sight of their point a and paul continues and he says the night is about over dawn is about to break be up and awake to what god is doing god is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed you see what paul believed and what they believed was that this group of Romans most likely were recent converts. They converted to Christianity. And when they first believed that, they believed that Jesus saved them from their sin in that moment. But what also was happening, as we believe now, is that Jesus was continuing that work in them by making them more and more like God. And Paul says, hey, look, this A thing, this vision, it's coming true. It's coming true, God is doing things in our lives. We just have to be awake to them. Stop being distracted by all the day-to-day and start focusing on what God is doing in your world. And he says, we can't afford to waste a minute. We must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence, in sleeping around in dissipation, and bickering and grabbing everything in sight. Gosh, there's so many moments Right? Where we, we want to just grab everything in sight. Have you ever been up really late, you're really tired, you've maybe made 37,000 decisions that day, and you're just over it, and someone in your house needs something, and so you just go to Amazon and you just prime, I'm going to click it, yes, we're going to grab everything in sight, we're going to just do the thing because it's easier, it's the path of least resistance. We're so exhausted that we end up making decisions that sometimes we wouldn't normally. And that's what Paul is warning the Romans about here. He says, don't be exhausted. Stop grabbing everything inside. We don't have time for that. Life is short and God is doing things. He says, get up and get dressed. He uses that language, get up and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger. Don't tell me that one day when your kids are older and things are a bit more settled, then you'll fix your relationship with your parents. Don't tell me one day when you make partner, then then you'll be more generous. Don't tell me one day when I'm married, that's when I'll start going to church more regularly. We do that, right? We loiter and linger on these visions for our lives. We have these visions for our lives, and yet we decide that they're always going to be put off and we end up in that sea of dots. Why do we do that? Why do we not get somewhere on purpose? Why do we live our lives in the midst of a sea of dots instead of on a path of where we wanted to go? I think it's because we don't have a clear vision of where we're going. We don't have a clear direction or destination of where we wanted to go. And without that clear destination, we don't have a purpose. And maybe it's not the clarity that's lacking for you, but maybe it's not a compelling vision. Maybe the vision that you have for your life, where you want to be in five years, maybe that was passed down to you by your parents, or by your friends, or by a boss. Maybe it's a vision that wasn't yours to begin with, and so it lacks that compelling nature for you to walk down that path. I think the problem is that we don't have a clear vision in our lives. And without it, we don't know where to go. A few, last week actually, I was in California on vacation and there is a place in California that my friend has taken me to that I love. It's a sweet little house that I used to visit when I was younger, and I really wanted to go back. And I knew the general area that it was in, I knew the neighborhood, but I didn't know the exact address. And I thought for sure Uber would be forgiving if I just put in the neighborhood. Like somewhere around here I'll I'll know it when I see it kind of situation. But do you know that if you go on Uber and you put in a neighborhood it doesn't work? You have to put in an address. And as I was sitting there really frustrated because I have no idea the exact place that I'm going, it dawned on me, you can't go somewhere that you don't know the address to. We can't go somewhere that we don't have a clear destination for. Do you know who's really good at this? Who has a clear vision, who has a clear destination? Five to eight year olds. They're excellent at it. You guys are excellent at it, aren't you? Because I guarantee you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Police officer? Yes. And what kind of police officer? What are you going to be wearing? Blue or grey? Blue, yeah. And if I ask you more questions, I guarantee you know them. You know why? Because he's imagined it. He knows exactly what kind of police officer he wants to be. Those are those pictures that you have on your refrigerators that kids draw of what exactly they want to be. They know what they're going to wear, who they're going to be with, where they're going to work. I've asked a kid how much he's going to make, and he's told me. Like, they know. They know exactly what that vision is, what that clear vision of their future is. Somehow along the way, maybe because we get too bogged down in details in the day-to-day, As adults, we start to lose track of that vision. But that vision is really important, because with that vision, we illuminate a path that's not easier, but it's at least clearer. We've been doing some strategic planning here at the church over the last few months, and one of, the ways, one of the ways that we chose to strategically plan was this process that had this first chapter where you go over and the first place you start is your vision. The first thing they ask you is, what is your vision for the church in three, five, and 10 years? And we've asked these questions before in some form or another and had goals and all these things, but it was the first time that we sat down and someone asked us to really paint a picture, to describe what was going on. I, I sat down and we all started talking about not just the hard data, but how we wanted people to feel and what it would look like and how we would feel there and what the decor would look like and, and what the building would look like. We described all these things. And honestly, it was the first time that we had said them out loud. We'd been meeting and gathering for a long time, thinking about the future of the church, but it was the first time that we actually put words to an image a description of where we wanted to go. And let me tell you, when we had that image, it was so much easier to do the rest. This is not a new concept. Athletes do this all the time. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. Do you know that Olympic sports teams hire sports psychologists on staff to go with them to the Olympic Games? Did you know that? Canada has eight. Eight! And they take these eight psychologists and they take them over to the Games and they train their athletes on visualization techniques. That's their purpose, to train the athletes on what to visualize. So they have them close their eyes and they visualize what it would mean to have that perfect race, or that perfect run. What would it mean if they had that perfect spike? And they make these athletes go over it again and again and again. And tons of athletes have accredited that to their success. Jim Carrey, when he was a struggling actor uh, in Hollywood, after a few really bad auditions, wrote himself a check for $10 million and signed it, and then on the memo line said, for acting services rendered. And he kept it in his wallet for about two years. And he said he did that because he wanted to pull it out and imagine what it would look like to be a successful actor. A couple years later, he got a contract for Dumb and Dumber and he got paid $10 million for acting services rendered. Now, do I think that he actually got $10 million because he wrote $10 million on a thing? No, but do I think that that check helped him visualize and motivate him to be clear about what his path was, to not get distracted by all the other opportunities? Yes. When we visualize and picture and imagine what our future would be like, when we can describe it in detail, when we can imagine, and feel, and taste what it would be like, we are way more likely to go somewhere on purpose. Now, here's the caveat. Not all visions are created equal. There are some visions, and a lot of visions that are floating out and around us, in our friends, and in our media, and around us in our circles, that don't quite make the cut. They're not quite the ideal destination. You see, there are some visions that we follow unknowingly, that we subscribe to unknowingly, because they're around in our culture. But we know these don't work, because when these visions are realized, we're left feeling incomplete, unrealized, like it wasn't the vision that we hoped for. I want to take a moment and describe some of these visions, because I think, for a lot of us, they're the ones that we at least partially subscribe to. I do. They're the ones that are floating around in our circles and floating around in our world. Maybe we got them from our parents, but they're there. One vision is this idea that if we just make enough money, if we just go up another 10 grand, if we invest in the right stock market, if we have the right person manage our money, if I work a little bit harder, a little bit longer, then we will be secure. Maybe it's because you didn't grow up with a lot and and that's what you want in life. You want your family to be secure and so you pursue and orient your life after this pathway of getting more money. Or maybe for you it's not money and not wealth. Maybe it's about how you look. Maybe it's fitness, maybe you watched your parents age, and that felt so hard. And so now, you're going to do everything in your power to make sure that you are healthy and fit, and you invest in all of these programs and products, and you go to the gym all the time just to make sure that you are healthy and fit and ready, and you invest all of your money into looking and feeling younger. Maybe it's more subtle than that, though. Maybe it's not about either of those things. Maybe it's about your reputation. Maybe when you were younger, your vision was, I want to go and get a degree. And then after that degree, I'm going to land a job in the right firm. And then I'm going to buy a house in the right neighborhood. And then I'm going to send my kids to the right schools. And then they'll get into the other right schools. And by the time that I'm 50, we are going to be excellent at living this perfect family life, full of achievement and education, everything that we wanted in life. But here's the thing about all those visions. They're not wholly bad. The actions in them are not morally bad. But what ends up happening if you accomplish those visions is that something feels incomplete. It's why we get those stories of men and women who work so hard and are so successful, but at the end of the life, end up regretting that they didn't spend time with their kids. Or why we get the stories of actors and actresses who have it all together and look amazing, but end up with stories of addiction and depression. It's why we end up these perfect families that we think are so amazing, and they have it all together, and then we learn 20 years later that she had been having an affair the whole time. It's these stories that end up just not complete you know that it's not exactly what it should be. And that's why whatever your vision is, whatever you choose for your life, whatever you imagine, your marriage, your family, your home, your business, whatever you imagine it's gonna be like in five years, your vision for you has to align with God's vision for us. Your vision for you has to align with God's vision for us. What is God's vision? In the Bible, it's called a lot of things. It's called the kingdom, it's called heaven, sometimes it's called Eden, referring to the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were created. It's this place, this state of being where everything is as it should be, where everything is living up to its fullest potential including humanity. You see, what God intended when he made us is that we would be partners in this work, that we would help bring this kingdom or heaven down to earth, that we would work with God. And we can do that because God created us in his image, it says in Genesis. An image is not just the physical image. It's about our hearts, it's how we feel. It's that we have this desire, this unique capacity in us to make things change, to make things happen, to build things, and to partner with God. So how do we do that? Well, historically, we haven't done a super great job of it. For years, we tried to make it work, to figure out what God meant by partnering with him. And over time it became evident that we weren't doing a great job. We needed an example. And so God sent himself as a human and said, here you go. This is how you are supposed to live. This is what it means to be fully human. You see, Jesus is the example of how we're supposed to live. He is humanity at its fullest potential. He is the heaven version of humanity. Now, I'm gonna be honest. When people stand on stages and tell me to be like Jesus, I really hate it. It's like the worst. I, I think about that and I think about, gosh, Jesus was a middle-aged, Middle Eastern, guy, rabbi who wandered from town to town, didn't have a home, didn't have a family, preached things, and then died by the time he was 33. Like nothing could feel more foreign to my life. Nothing could feel more further removed from my life as a mom of two in Dallas, Texas. Like it just doesn't compute. And for a long time, I read the Bible and thought, gosh, am I, am I supposed to sell all my things and go wander around the desert? Is that what life is supposed to be about? Is that what being like Jesus means? And a friend, a friend pointed this out a few years ago and I thought it was so poignant. He said, "Uh, Ali, it's, it's not about his lifestyle choices. We would be in trouble if it were about his lifestyle choices. It's about his heart. What we're supposed to copy in Jesus what we're supposed to follow in Jesus, how we're supposed to understand what it means to be human is by looking at Jesus's heart, by looking at who he loved, how he acted when he got mad, who he cared for, who did he have time for, who did he listen to, what made him angry, what did he value? Those are the questions that make us understand what Jesus's heart was and those are the questions that have to be part of our vision. The heart of your vision has to reflect the heart of Jesus. Let me say that again, the heart of your vision, whatever it is for you in five years, has to reflect the heart of Jesus. Let me tell you the good news. So one of the privileges and challenges of raising kids is trying to explain the mysteries of faith to them that sometimes you don't even understand. But since the time Joel was born, my three-year-old, we've been telling him that Jesus lives in his heart. Jesus is in your heart. And over the last few weeks, we've been trying to reinforce that. So every time he does something helpful or nice or he thinks of something in an interesting way, we say, well, that's Jesus is helping you. That's Jesus helping you. and it, I have to be honest; it's backfired a little bit because yesterday he misbehaved and he said he told me that Jesus was napping, that Jesus wasn't <laughs> awake. I was like, "Oh God, that's not how it works." But whatever. The point is that we tell him Jesus is in him, Jesus is in him, and that Jesus is who makes him able to do those things. But just like when Joel does those things, when you do those things that's also Jesus in your heart because here's the thing, your heart was meant to be patterned after Jesus' heart. It's not this unattainable pie-in-the-sky dream. You are meant to be like Jesus. Your heart is programmed in a way that you have the capacity to be like Jesus. And I think deep down you know this because every time you do something good, and helpful, or you do something that is kind and patient, do something that is enduring, do something that lasts, do something out of love, you feel that. You know that you have the capacity to love like Jesus. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be an amazing vision if at the end of your life people thought of you and said, I knew God a little bit better because I knew them. I knew God a little bit better because I knew them. I don't know what your vision is. There are a million ways to get to that destination. There are a million different versions of how we can show Jesus in this world, and I don't know what yours is, but you do and you have the capacity within you to not only make that vision a reality, but to every day be a little bit more like the heart of Jesus. Today we get to share in the table, and it's a special version of the table. Instead of saying what we normally do about the body and the blood, today we're gonna remind you that as you take the bread and as you take the juice, that God is with you that God is in you. And we'll come back together and we'll sing a song together because as you're singing, I want you to know that I'm gonna be praying that whatever vision you have for your life, that it is a vision that is aligned with God's vision for you. And that is a vision that reflects the heart of Jesus. Let us pray. God, you are so good. You're so good to have created us in your image, to, given, to have given us this original blessing, this blessing that sustains us, this blessing that makes it possible to live this life with hope. We're so thankful for this community to be able to gather and rally around each other, around our visions. We pray that whatever vision you have for us, that you may reveal it to us and that we may take the steps over the next five weeks, over the next five years, to make that vision a reality. It is in your name that we pray, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.